Welcome back to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Jason Rugg, and joined, as always, by our documentary filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey, Jason. Good to have you here, Christian. Uh, And uh, do you want to give a quick uh, intro to our guest real quick? I am so thrilled to have this guest today. We got Joe Amaday back. Joe, great to see you. How you doing? Good, good, good. You've been gallivanting around the world, uh, looking at films and trying to sell and buy them. So we're super happy to have this time with you. Feel very honored. Uh, Jason, you want to read his bio real quick for anybody who doesn't know who he is. I mean, goodness yeah, gracious. I, I feel like Joe is pretty well known to documentary first listeners. Uh, but for those who don't know Joe, uh, he founded Virtual Films Entertainment and has been in the business since 2003. Uh, he has released films like Supersize Me, I Am Chris Farley, Restrepo, Glenn Campbell, I'll Be Me, Forks Over Knives, We Are Columbine, and I Am Patrick Swayze. <laughs> That's a lot of good stuff right there. And that's, that's a pretty I just realized good stuff. as Jason was reading that, uh, we're at an anniversary. It's like a 20th anniversary for you in this business. October. Yep. Wow. Yeah. 20 years with this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's you, strange. Yeah. And I bet you have seen so much transformation. And we've talked a little bit that about that, you know, before. Uh, yeah. But I think the transformation in the last five to 10 years probably has been like lightning speed. Why don't you talk about, um, you know, we've got a few things to talk about today. We're going to entitle this episode um, top five things every filmmaker should know. So we've got five things that you are going to talk to us about. Yep. And, um, but before we start that, I do want to talk about what you've experienced over this course of your career and then what you've been learning recently uh, as you've gone to other film markets, as you've done business in the industry. Tell us what's happening out there right now. So for starters, the main question is, you've been in this business for 20 years. Uh, you've seen a change. Tell us what you've been seeing. So the question really should be, tell us what has happened in the last five minutes or five <laughs> days or five weeks or, uh, because we're seeing such a change, such an upheaval in the entire film industry from the studio level all the way down to, you know, independent filmmakers and independent film distributors. And I'll, I'll, I'll get into that in a second, but you know, when I got into the business, I actually got into the business a lot longer than 20 years ago. I worked in the, at the very first video store in Philadelphia, renting <laughs> VHS tapes. So, wow. yeah. So I have witnessed the change from VHS to DVD or really VHS to uh, Laserdisc, and then DVD, and then mm. Blu-ray, and then, uh, I guess, streaming, and then originals, and, and, and then, you know, transactional. So I've been around through all of these changes. And being a, you know, I, I'm a, a historian, a film historian, so I have a lot of you know, knowledge about you know, the, the film business and all the way back to the silent days. And I've studied the change from silent to sound and how that changed the industry. And then the, and then when television hit, um, which uh, changed the industry again, and then the closure of uh, movie theaters that were owned by movie studios up until the, the, the early 50s, 90% of every movie theater that Americans went to was owned by a studio. And then the United States government said, oh, it's a little bit of a monopoly there. You cannot own theaters anymore. So that and the advent of television really put a hurting. Well, it ended the studio system that we all, you know, are fond of or or that created some of the greatest movies in film history. So there has always been changes and upheaval and um, format changes to the industry that we all work in. But nothing like the last two years. Um, and, you know, we had, we had streaming come on board five years ago, which killed the video store business, you know, the video retail business, put it out of business very, very quickly. Um, because everybody can now just order a movie from their television set or their computer and didn't need to go into, you know, a, a retail establishment, even though, uh, the retail establishments, that business was working pretty, pretty darn well, you know, people had and, yeah, enjoyed it. Yeah. And I remember like vividly, like that period of time where everybody was loving going to Blockbuster 
And it was just, you know, it was a really, really fun time. And there was magic baked into waiting for that video to come back or going in and buying the popcorn. You know, there was a smell, there was a feel about all of that. And then I do remember when Netflix kind of came along and they started with, I think, the DVDs in boxes that they were sending by mail, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, wait a minute. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I still get that. You still get them? Oh, yeah. Because the movies come out. Oh, yeah. You can can still get DVDs through Netflix. Now, everybody's watching this saying, what is wrong with him? (laughs) (laughs) One, he still has a DVD player. But the little-known secret is that, again, going back to my love of film and my my need to see just about every movie that comes out, and I've been that way since a child, uh, movies come out on DVD before they get to streaming by a good two to three months. So even now? I was, even now. Oh, yeah. The, the, so, well, a lot less now because a lot of people aren't even releasing their movies on DVD. But there's a lot of films that, you know, I want to see the minute that they come out. I don't want to wait three months for streaming. So I've always kept my DVD, um, uh, my DVD account at Netflix. But I will tell you, at one time, my DVD queue was close to 200 titles. <laughs> and, when and do you wow. have time to watch all of these? Yeah, ask my wife. Uh, um and today that queue is less than 10. Wow. Less than 10. Wow. So, yeah. So, wow. but, you know, I, I, listen, I, tr- you know, I watch a movie a day, almost sometimes two in a day. It's, it's what I've done since as long as I can remember. Um, so, you know, it's, it's my constant companion that there's always something to see. So, um, so being able to watch all of these changes within the industry and being a part of it and adapting my own business to it, you know, has been very, very exciting. It's been very challenging, uh, in particular in the last couple of years, but it's been, it's been really exciting to see, you know, VHS. So VHS, when, when, when those video stores that you were talking about, when the, when the business first started, when the video business first started, one movie, cost the retailer around $60 because the business was nothing but a rental business. Nobody owned movies. So that business thrived for two or three years. You would go to the video store and you would rent a movie or you would rent two or three for five bucks or three bucks. And you do the math, you, you break even on that $60 pretty quick. And then Paramount came out and said, you know what, we're, we're going to do a test and we're going to put Raiders of the Lost Ark out to the marketplace for 1999 because we think people will want to own Raiders of the Lost Ark and they were right and so wait a second wait 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 because I don't really remember this so you're saying that there was a time when we only could rent the movies we couldn't own them oh no you could buy them but they were $79 oh they were super expensive wow Okay, so, so the test with Raiders yeah. was twenty bucks, nineteen. Raiders was twenty bucks, and everything changed. Everything. Wow. You know, now any of the big Raiders ish movies, the hit movies, were nineteen ninety nine or twenty four ninety nine. They were affordable to the consumer, and that's when the WalMarts of the world and the Best Buys of the world, the major brick and mortar retailers, got into the business. They weren't in the business. There was no. There was no big brick and mortar stores carrying videos before that. Well, and from the con- consumer's point of view, as I recall, it was really cool to have these movies. And I'm sort of dating myself. But when my husband and I met, I can't believe I'm telling this story. When my husband and I met, we met on a basketball court uh, in Washington, D.C., and he asked me to to go out for a drink, and I said no. My number's in the phone book, trying to you know see if he was really gonna <laughs> pursue me. He did, and um, we went out to get a drink at the Tombs in Washington, and then decided we were gonna watch a movie at back at my place. There you and go. so he, um, this was like 1993, and I went home, and he showed up with a gym bag. 
And I was like, who does he think he is? Like, I thought he was thinking he was going to spend the night. And he comes in and he opens his uh, gym bag and he's got a whole bunch of DVDs in there for me to choose from. And so I cho- chose uh, Hunt for Red October because it was relatively new and he had the, you know, the VHS tape of it. Did I say DVDs? Right. These, these were VHS tapes. He had a gym bag full of VHS tapes. And so I picked Hunt for Red October and we watched that on my VCR. And, you go. Uh, but we were proud to own these VHS tapes. You know, they were in your bookcases and yes, you were, were kind of a cool if you actually had movies in your own house. And then, yeah. when, the Disney, and then when Disney started releasing their classics, right, twenty four ninety nine or twenty nine ninety nine, every family had Bambi and Pinocchio and Snow White. They just waited for them to come out. Right. Yeah. Okay, I mean, so what was the next big change then? So the next big change was was actually streaming. I mean, that ran that business ran successfully forever. And here's a little story. So Blockbuster has, I don't know, 27,000 stores and I think they actually owned between 15 and 20,000 and the rest were franchises. Everything's going well, you know. We're all I didn't own a company back then, otherwise I'd be in a little bit different financial uh, uh, situation, but um, I was working for people at that point. So Netflix starts and they're mailing these DVDs um, to everybody's homes. So, you know, Blockbuster is like, well, nobody ever is going to take care, is going to take part in that. They want to come into our stores. That's the first mistake Blockbuster made. So it took Blockbuster about a year to figure out, well, maybe we should start mailing you know, have home delivery too. So then Blockbuster started. But it was too late, wasn't it for them? It was too late. And then so, but but Netflix is still, I don't want to say they're small potatoes, but you know, they're a small company where Blockbuster is is the leader. So Blockbuster, so so I'm sorry, Blockbuster says, hey, Netflix, um, you know, we want to buy you. And without naming names, but the principals of Netflix fly to Dallas, Texas, which is where the headquarters of Blockbuster was. And they go into this meeting and Blockbuster, again, not naming any names, the legends, the, the legend of this story says that Blockbuster treated Netflix, the people at Netflix, like they were, um, you know, the little kids in the room and that they made an offer that was absolutely insulting to the Netflix people and treated them as if, you know, you're, you're, you're never going to take over. We're blockbuster. It was really a bad meeting, and I and I'm I know people that were in that meeting that have told me this story. And Netflix left the building, and as they were you know getting walking across the street to the parking lot, these two men who was uh, who were you know at the up the at the top of the stairs at Netflix looked at each other and said, uh, "We're going to take them down." Did they treat it like this? And they did. Wow. And they wow, did. and they did. Super. I mean, and it didn't even seem to take that long. Like it didn't before take that we long. knew it, like Blockbuster was just, I don't know, gone. 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 I mean, it seemed like it happened overnight. It, it probably happened over a year, but gone. I mean, every video store in the country closed. And is that just because we were we were renting movies from Netflix through the mail? That's what did it. No, no. At the same time, within that next year, streaming started. You okay. were able, yeah. So that's that was the killer. You didn't need to go because at that point, everybody's selling their movies to Netflix. I think Disney was the only one that wasn't, but everybody's putting their movies up on Netflix. There wasn't Apple and Amazon Prime and Hulu. They didn't exist at this point. It was only Netflix. So you wanted to and see I a movie, remember- you went to Netflix. Yeah, and I remember there was this weird time where Netflix decided they were going to do streaming, and everybody was like, "They're crazy. That's not going to work." And I said that. Yeah. <laughs> to Ted yeah, Sarandon. I said that. Wow, you were wrong. <laughs> well, I was so wrong. I was. I was. You know, we were the second company to give Netflix movies for streaming, and I think I said this on one of the other podcast, so forgive me if I did, but I, I got a phone call, and, they, and Netflix said, we need 100 movies. I said, for what? And they said, this thing's streaming, 
And uh, they made me an offer. It was a really good offer. Uh, I said, what's streaming? And they said to me, you're, you know, people will be able to watch movies on their computer. And I said, uh, listen, I'll sell you the 100 movies, but you're out of your mind. <laughs> Never will this happen. <laughs> yeah, so that's the guy you got as your guest on the podcast right now. Well, I mean, it's just so hard to see because there was just so much we didn't know. There was so uh, much we didn't know. But I feel like that streaming thing did take a long time to take hold. Because it took the younger generation who understood streaming to kind of get older and the well, people that, you know, were buying actually hard things or renting yeah. hard things, um, that was very, it's still difficult it, to make them transition. As soon as people adopted watching movies on their phone, which was unheard of at that time, right. and that's the younger generation, then, you know. Everything was off the table. I and mean, then a pandemic hits and nobody can yeah. can really do anything. And streaming okay. is so accessible. And now we're yes. in the last, you know, so, three years. Yeah. So, so over the last, you know, let's say half a dozen years, streaming is king. And everybody across the board is uh, are paying exuberant uh, amount of money f to make movies because they started making their own movies. So you started hearing... $300 million budgets, $400 million budgets, you know, the average film, $200 million budgets. And, you know, those films are not being shown theatrically. They are going on to the streamer, whether it be Netflix or Apple. They aren't on iTunes. Those films never get rented. Um, so every, and because it's all about subscribers, you want to, you want to put the new Brad Pitt movie or, you know, on your service. So people say, Oh, you know, I, I need to subscribe. And, and it's great, again, for a couple of years, but sooner or later, you're going to plateau on members, you know? Um, and that starts to happen three years ago. And it's noticeable. But by now, everybody's making their own movies. You know, there's very, very little licensing of films going on. Meaning the streaming companies are making their own movies. And, and, the, and, the, and the premium cable folks, the HBOs, the, the Showtimes, they're all making their own stuff. And then the pandemic hits and the pandemic, what the pandemic does is it, it, it helps out the renters, the, the transactional people, people that are renting movies because it, it doesn't really help the subscribers because they've already paid for their subscription. They've already subscribed. It wasn't like the pandemic hit and, you know, another hundred million people subscribed to Netflix. They already were subscribers to Netflix. So it really helps out the transactional business. And the streamers haven't figured out, you know, these high budget movies, they haven't gotten past figuring that out yet. And then the pandemic ends and people go back outside They're, you know, the transactional business goes back down to where it was. And now there's the subscriptions are really off the, off the charts are not happening at all. And every single one of them realizes they're over their head. So what do you do when you're over your head? You know, what, what do you do when you're, you know, not making as much money as you did the previous year? You know, let people off. go stop people making, go. you know, original things. But I want to go back for a second, yeah. because even during the pandemic, yeah, a lot of people had Netflix. Some people had Amazon Prime. But what and maybe some people had Disney. But but it seemed like all of a sudden everybody decided to get into the streaming game. And so before I knew it, if I wanted to see X, Y, and Z, I had to have five different subscriptions, you know, yeah. Yeah. to different streaming services. And then it becomes untenable for the people wanting to watch movies. So then they have to figure out, well, which streaming service do we want and start cutting things. I mean, I still feel like we are in this weird place of, the industry has no idea what's going to happen because I think the economics situation has really changed things. So it was like we're in this perfect storm of of confusion, economics well, wise and business wise. Yeah, we are, and 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 that would be the end point of where we're at today. Um, over the past three weeks, so. Uh, Let's, let's talk about the past three weeks. 
Disney uh, lays off is in the process of laying off seven thousand people, and that and that touches into the acquisitions department. Um, Discovery and Warner are still trying to figure out how that's all going to work, and layoffs continue to happen. And Netflix lets go of two of their key um, people that were instrumental in building the streaming business, both on the documentary side and the narrative side. And everybody sits back and says, what the heck is happening? Because you're right, Christian, nobody knows. And when, and when we get to a point like this, everybody's afraid to buy. Everybody's afraid to spend money on independent product. They're still going to buy their Brad Pitt movie. They're still going to make the, you know, whatever, the, the, even the Will Smith movie, in spite of all that, in spite of everything Will, Will has brought on himself. So the big stuff is still going to be made. And that's what they're going to talk about. But the smaller stuff, the independent stuff, is is hurting right now. So that's why these these five things that we talked about or that, or that we want to discuss are even more important today for young filmmakers than they ever have been. Um, and it, not in any order, but I know on this list is um, know, know the business that you're getting into. And that is so important right now. You know, it's... I don't want to say it's easy, but part of being a filmmaker is knowing how to make a film or knowing whatever your job is, whether it be editing or sound or directing or producing or writing, you know, whatever you, whatever you're doing or whatever you're learning to become the best uh, that you can be in that, in that, in that part or in that subject. But if you're producing or you're directing or you're someone that's putting it all together, Knowing how to make that film is half of the problem, is half of the job, half of the miracle. So making your film is half the miracle. You made your film, you finished your film. That's 50% of the miracle. The other 50% is getting that film, making it available, available for people to see. And that's the second half. And that's becoming harder and harder and harder. Um, and I, I want to throw one other thing in there. And, and maybe it's a thirds kind of thing. But part of knowing the business, knowing how to get your movie seen and, and, and completing your project is all about knowing the business of business. So it's how are you going to control your budgets? How are you going to you know, make sure that you can make the movie that you want to make. You don't get over your skis. You don't lose your shirt yes. in the midst of that. And what's hard is, you know, I'm sitting in this situation where when you don't know what the end result is, I mean, you can even find a distributor, but that distributor has to be able to do something with your film, like put it somewhere. Well, you are one of the ones that can do that, but. Yeah, and that's and that's you know getting your film put up on a or presented to streamers or cable folks. You can find people to do that. It's not that easy, but you can find them. They're they're out there. There's good ones, and then there's not so good ones. And you know you you don't just choose the first person you talk to. You ask around. You ask other filmmakers who they have used. You do you do your homework. But while you're making your film, and we'll and we'll stick to documentaries, while you're making your docu documentary, and usually it takes a couple of years to make a documentary, whatever subject matter you're you're talking about, you need to do the research while you're making your movie. And, and you know, if it's not the director doing this, then maybe you assign somebody. But in your budget, you have to find somebody. You have to put somebody that is going to do the research of what your subject matter is, because that's who your that fan base or is who you're going to go after when you finish your film. In, in your case, it was World War II. And there's, you know, so many branches of that that you can go into um, because you have to reach out to those people. If you're making a movie about curing cancer, then, you know, you better be in touch with the American Cancer Society and all those other companies that help fight the cause because they're the people that you're, that you're going to want to try to do editorials with. They're the people that you're going to try to, you know, put your trailer up on to reach that base. And then you have to hope through your own social media methods and the distributor's social media methods that you even reach a wider, uh, a, a, a wider array of people. Without that, I don't care how good the movie is. It doesn't matter. Um, you'll, you'll get, you know, standing ovation from your parents and your 
family and your best friends <laughs> and think that, you know, everybody that you love told you you made a good movie, but they're not going to tell you you made a bad movie, you know? So you need to be teaching and educating yourself while you're making the movie. And again, it might not be the director's job. This might even be a new position that hasn't really been listed on, you know, a budget before, but it's very, very important. Well, your point is just so absolutely on point because it's kind of where I am right now. And it ties into the way things are in our system right now. So you can, again, like I said, make a relevant movie to a fan base that is passionate because we did in our situation. Um, it can be well-loved. It can do well in film festivals. But you have to already have that audience built in, followers built in, buyers built in that want to see your movie. Um, and be, and then you have to figure out how are you going to advertise to those people? Because that's the biggest problem I see right now is you can make a fabulous movie. You can even have an, an audience fan base. But if you don't have a way to get people's attention so that they know that your movie is on Amazon, Apple TV, or you know Google Play or YouTube movies, they're never going to watch it. Nobody's ever going to see it. And that that piece is super challenging, even from the distributor's point of view right now. Because like you said, you know, these streamers and cable people are not really buying independent stuff. We used to, you know, the business used to have every local newspaper once a week would have top 10 videos of the, of the week. You know, movies would be reviewed. They're not anymore. They're, you know, no. the New York Times and the LA Times and maybe Chicago reviews films. Philadelphia doesn't have a, a critic anymore. And we're a major, you know, a, a major city. So, the, the discussion of movies, there is no Cisco Niebert anymore. The, the, the right. ongoing discussion of new films isn't happening anymore um, because there's no press. There's no right. Uh, Why is that? So, so it, it's it, so you have to be you have to be inventive and creative on how you get the word out. And and again, if you wait until your movie's done, then you're way behind. Because yes. it takes months. You need to engage those viewers almost while you're making the movie. So when that movie finally hits, they've been waiting. Yeah. And what we found out, I mean, fortunately, you know, I don't know how I ended up doing it. But, I mean, we did do that the whole way through. And I was fortunate that we had that built-in audience. What I learned through that process is we were able to release stuff that was in the movie. Like, and we did. And before the movie ever came out, and it kind yeah. of doesn't matter. Like in the old days, it was like a hush, hush. You don't, nobody yeah. knows what's in that movie, right? Yeah. You can't release anything. Everything had to be so secret. It's almost the opposite now. Like you have to tease out what you're doing and yeah. demonstrate that, you know, and get people interested in what their appetites for free and hoping that they will yes. go see the whole movie. Like everything is on its head now. Yeah. Everything is, everything is on its head. And, you know, the filmmaker has to, you know, again, they have to educate themselves. You know, I, I can't tell you how many filmmakers we talk to today and we tell them what has been happening in the industry. Some of the things that you and I have just spoken about with layoffs and mergers, and they have no idea. And I, so I say to them, you, you know, you're in the movie business. Don't you get variety don't you get hollywood reporter don't you subscribe to deadline.com i mean if you're not doing that then don't you know i almost want to say don't make a movie because you're <laughs> getting into this being so uneducated you know these these trades you don't get them on your doorstep anymore unless you really want to they, they still print it's very expensive but you get them online and you get them every single day and that's the first thing i look at in the morning um and nowadays, we all look at it to see who's getting laid off next week. You yeah. know, yeah. yeah. So now you, you have to do that. You, you know, if, you're you're asking a, a distributor to explain to you why Netflix is having problems right now because the filmmaker doesn't know that their stock dropped, you know, by almost fifty percent last year. People that aren't even in the industry know that Netflix ran into problems last year. Yeah. So, so, you, well, so you I'll tell you what I see. Part. What I see, and I actually see this in the acting industry as well, I see it with a lot of creatives, is that you are so focused on what you are focused on. 
you know, if you're focused on acting, you're focused on your craft, your skill. If you're a filmmaker, you're focused on the story you want to make, right? You're so in that creative space. And typically creatives are not necessarily business minded. That's not everyone. It's a general broad brush. But what, what I've learned the hard way is you really have to think about all of those things before you think about what am I going to create? What's the art I want to make? Because ultimately the end result is if you want to make a, if you want to have it seen, if you actually want to make money back, you have to understand the marketplace and know what it is that people want. Otherwise you're sunk. So Otherwise I think you're, you're yeah. yeah, I think you're completely right. One of the things I'm going to go back to this list because we've kind of touched on things, but I want to put them in order. So sure. the number one thing is learn the distribution business as best you can get every trade and read them to keep up with things. So yes. you were just talking about some of the trades that I heard you mention. Let's go over them again. What are the top trades you recommend people read? So the top trades would be obviously Variety and Hollywood Reporter. As importantly, maybe even on top of Variety and Hollywood Reporter would be Deadline.com. Uh, there's a there's a, a UK-based magazine called Screen Daily. Um, those are the top four. You you know you can get into Filmmaker.com. You can get into you know specific to your trade. I'm sure there's some editing sites that you can go to. But overall, to learn the business, if, if even if you only do the top three, because Screen Daily is a little bit more expensive and it's more uh, European-centric, but that's very important. Um, but if, if you could do Deadline Variety and Hollywood Reporter, uh, you're in. You're in. Yeah. Um, One of the ones that I've been enjoying recently is Lucas Shaw at Bloomberg Screen Time. Have you yeah. read this at all? Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, I, I really feel like he's got his pulse on kind of what's going on in the industry and they're free emails that I get. Yeah. And there's a, there's one called the wrap. That's really good. Um, they're see, you know, it's funny as we've seen the business change, you know, the old standbys variety and Hollywood reporter, they were starting to get scooped by deadline. Now deadline started to get scooped by the wrap. And so there is this new breed starting to hit. And, you know, the old timers at Hollywood Reporter and Variety are trying to catch up sometimes. So, yeah, um, you know, I, I, my suggestion is to get as many as you can afford. Yeah. I also get real screen. I don't pay like a lot yeah, of the things I've been too. reading. I'm, I'm not paying for them. So, you know, if yeah. you don't want to spend money on some of these other ones, there are resources out there like real screen is great. Like I'm getting those emails all the time and it's talking about the layoffs. It's talking about the business of things. It is yeah. talking about who the movers and shakers are, who's getting promoted, who's not. Um, yeah. So there are things out there that people can find. Um, but like you said, I do think there's the top three or four um, that are worth paying for. And you got to put that in your budget as a business person and realize that that's not an insubstantial, no. you know, commitment. No, that's not, to make. that's not fluff. Yeah, business-wise. No. Okay, so then the next one is watch movies all kinds, all the time, I mean, from yeah. all ages, learn the masters. I mean, I, I try to say this as much as I can. You can learn more from a silent film, a really good silent film, than you can technique um, and creativity from just about any movie being made today. And and I think Spielberg and Scorsese um, and even Tarantino would agree. Um don't be afraid to watch, you know, old movies. You will learn from them. They are going, even though they might be legendary, it might be Hitchcock, it might be Howard Hawks, it might be John Ford. They went through exactly what you're going through right now. So, you know, John Ford went through the same, uh, you know, aggravation and, and everything else that comes with it. When it comes to making a movie, he went through that with Grapes of Wrath. I mean, Frank Capra went through it with It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, yeah. it, that kind of stuff never changes. The aggravation, the nervousness, the the consternation, everything. It, it They went through it too, but and they came out on the other side and made a movie. So don't, you know, don't be afraid of the masters. Well, and Ken Burns, I mean, I've, I've shared this a zillion times, but I was, you know, that's, that's the documentary world. And when I hear him talk about all of the failures that he has had and how hard it is to get financing and just the, 
stuff that he went through, you realize if masters like that are going to go through all of that stuff, you know, it's not because I am, you know, a little, you know, nothing and I don't know anything. It's just part of the business. It's part of yeah. the business. They're all going through it. And, um, you know, I, there's a very, very small percentage of them. No, no, I, I shouldn't even say this. I'm sure George Clooney has had projects that were passed on. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. yeah. And and that's what Ken Burns said. And I was like, what? Are you, what? Are you, yeah. you got to be kidding me. Yeah. Really? Yeah. You, you they all go through them. it. Yeah. Crazy. Okay. Let's move on to number three. So number three, we kind of talked, touched on this a little bit, but I think you probably have some more things you can share. Educate yourself on film marketing and how in a no print world, you can get the word out about your film, learn social media. Talk to us about what your company has had to learn, um, you know, in order to market what you're doing. So, you know, you know, we really handle the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Instagrams of the world. And then what we try to do in certain cases is go after that subject matter of that documentary that we were talking about and try to enlist the aid of websites or bloggers that talk about this subject matter. And again, whether it be World War II or any of the wide variety of subject matters our docs talk about, that has become harder and harder, but we do it. Um, uh, what we don't do and what a lot of, you know, again, this goes back to what was the established way of releasing a movie two years ago, and that would be you would go hire a, a film publicist. A film publicist takes your film and tries to get it reviewed. Well, your movie's not playing theatrically, so nobody's going to review it. So to get a high score on Rotten Tomatoes, you need a certain amount of reviews. And if you're direct to digital, you're probably not going to get that number of reviews. So, and publicists are expensive. They're not a thousand dollars, you know, No. a really yeah. good one's $20,000. And if you know somebody really well, maybe you can get that person down to 15, but we have found that most recently it just, it's just not worth it. So, you know, again, it goes back to teaching yourself and uh, how to do it and using those tools, whether it be Facebook or Insta uh, Instagram or any of these other maybe new sites that, Younger folks might know that I wouldn't, um, and it could be TikTok. I mean, it, yeah. Well, it let work. me let me just share sort of a real case scenario. I've talked about you know recently we've pretty much lost all of our staff. People couldn't volunteer anymore. They are now moving on to their paying work. So Bill, Ben Fison and I are kind of left here. We have Jonathan Liu who posts stuff for us. We're so thankful for him. But for the most part, it's Ben and I. And I've had other people doing my social media. Well, now I had to make a choice. Am I just going to let this go or am I going to have to learn this myself? So I have been out there in the last since January trying to figure out like how to make an Instagram post, which probably makes everybody under, you know, 30 laugh hysterically. Right. But, but there are so many different ways to try to make those posts and interact. And every platform is different. Every single platform is different. Everyone has a different audience and you have to, um, you know, figure out how to put your stuff out there in a way that reaches that market. So, and you know, you can spend money buying views and buying subscribers. And so I thought that that's really how it was going to work. And so I, with a couple of our posts on Instagram, I did boost those. I probably spent around $200 for two or three like reels and those reels got up to, you know, somewhere between 10 and 19,000 views. And when I paid for people to go and visit our profile, we were able to get followers. So those are followers that we paid for views that we paid for. And I thought, you know, well, that's good. Maybe we've gotten 300 more subscribers and we got a lot of views and I, but I spent, $200 to do that. Yeah. So then I had this meeting with the 101st Airborne Division who has, you know, thousands of, you know, subscribers and viewers every day. And thankfully they said to us, well, you're, you're focusing your next film on the 101st Airborne Division. Why don't we collaborate on some posts? Yes. I was like, oh, awesome. So, so we made a post focusing on the 101st Airborne Division. They collaborated with us and shared it with a couple of their influencers that they partner with. 
And within a matter of 24 hours, we had like 15,000, you know, views on one reel, including a whole bunch of subscribers. So it's now up to 20,000, you know, 500, something like that views. That's great. Continue to get subscribers and the majority of them, you know, were non followers. And so then you're sitting back and you're like, holy cow, it, this was far more effective than spending money to yes. try to get views and followers. But to your point, how do you make those relationships with influencers? And, and it comes down, Joe, you know this better than I do, relationship, relationship, relationship. Yeah. And you have to have some synergy between your film and you know, an influencer in in order for them to kind of sign on to your mission. And um, that's a tough nut to crack. That's a very tough nut to crack, but it's not uncrackable as you've just proved. Um, But that's why that, that business, that work needs to begin while the film is being made. Yes. Because if you wait, like I said earlier, if you wait till the, wait till the film's done, then you're way behind You're months behind. You need to have someone and, you know, probably that person, you know, you, you have to decide, are they, did you want them to be, you know, more creative than technical, more technical than creative, or re- what you really need is somebody that can man the, the technical aspect of it, the creative aspect of it, but as importantly, build a relationship with somebody, somebody that's not scared to get on the phone or get online and contact people they've never met before and say, hey, we're making a movie about the 101st or whatever. Um, I need your help. And by yeah. the way, my movie is going to pay tribute to your group. We're yep. going to turn them into heroes. Yep. I just need and your I, help. I think it's going to be a combination of like an impact producer who knows how to create an impact with your film and build those relationships and a social media manager who knows what they're doing as well as some foot soldiers, younger people who are actually on their devices doing what you got to do. It's not just one person. It's a bunch of people and you're either going to have to pay for that or you're going to have to figure out how to bring people on your team. All right, we're going to move on to the um, next one. So we're on number four. Uh, We talked a little bit about this. Determine what your objective is with your film. Is it to have people see it? Is it to make money? Is it for exposure? Um, you know, determine what your objective is before you ever start and how you're going to get there. So talk a little bit about those different options. When we say, uh, you know, to think about the objective of your film, what should people be thinking about? So most filmmakers, their first objective is to make enough money back to pay back their investors. And, you know, you that goes into everything else we just talked about, about keeping your budget where it should be and not overspending and not making it so it's going to be impossible to ever pay your investors back. There's um, a, a lot of folks out there, though, especially first time filmmakers that want to make a movie and maybe have angel investors or um, have put put their own money into it. And they want their movie to be seen, meaning their main goal is to get their movie up on Amazon or, or to get it up on iTunes, get up, get it up on the transactional sites, knowing it probably won't get picked up by Netflix or a site like that or a a streaming site, but they want their movie to be seen because being able to say my movie is on Amazon to Mr. Investor to go make your next movie makes it so much easier. Even Even if the movie's lost money to say that I finished the film and it's available for the whole world to see, for the whole yeah. world, for the whole world to rent is very important. So we've actually had filmmakers come to us and say, "I just need to get my film up. It's probably not going to make any money because it's of a subject matter that, you know, it's just not it's just not going to draw people." And we actually have service deals where filmmakers come to us and they pay us a fee, and we guarantee their movie is going to be put up on iTunes and Amazon and Vudu. Um, and it's and it's a we like to say it's a ninety nine and nine tenths percent guarantee, um, but we've never missed and we've done probably I don't know ten to fifteen of them and the, again the filmmaker comes they pay us a fee it's not non recoupable fee um, some film some filmmakers come to us when they have a movie that they've passed along to every distributor in the world and every distributor has passed so now they're stuck they've made the movie and they don't know what to do with it. And their investors are saying, well, 
you can't make any money if it's not up anywhere. And we guarantee it that it will be put up. Yeah, it's an awesome service for filmmakers. All right, yeah. we're, we're running short on time, yeah. so we're going to go through these last two really quick. We've already talked about this, but when you make your film, you're opening a business. And therefore, you need to understand the basic principles of business in order to achieve your goals. And I'm going to weigh in here and say what that means is money, money, money. When you open uh, you know, a film, uh, a film, you are opening a business. You have to have a bank account. You have to have all of the, you know, legal paperwork. You have to have an accountant. You have to have a lawyer. I mean, there are, there are costs involved in opening a business. And so you have to understand the return on investment. And so that does mean working backwards, thinking about how you're going to, to market your film or make money at the end before you start, you know, investing it and then, you know, spending wisely so that you recoup your investment. I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a business. It's called the film business. Yeah. It's been a business since uh, Charlie Chaplin. It's a business, <laughs> and you're right. You're working backwards. You have a sum of money that is put into a bank account because you have to have the film has to have its own bank account. Yeah. And then you draw from that money. And, you know, while you're making your film, if there's ways of cutting line items, maybe doing it yourself. Um, you do that because at the end of the day, unless you have an angel investor that's going to constantly just feed you money and they're becoming less and less attractive these days, then, you know, if it's $300,000 or $200,000 or $100,000, uh, that's all you got. And at the end, and when you, and what happens is in that budget, in that $100,000 has to be something for you. Okay. Even if it's 10,000 or five, say it's 100,000 even if it's $5,000, okay? And you get all of a sudden you're at $95,000 and you haven't taken a penny, then maybe you've just worked for nothing. So, well, that's where I'm guilty. I mean, I've haven't taken a penny. I've worked now for 5 5 years to keep this do this movie and I made that critical error. I haven't paid yeah. myself. In fact, I've continued to personally put money out there. So that's yeah. a very good point, Joe. I think my next question is, do you is there a budget amount that people should think about um, if they're, let's say, let's say I was going to come to you and Joe, I got this movie. I need to set my budget. I want to see if there's any meat on the bones at the end. Would you recommend a budget amount to stay within so we could make a return on the investment at the end? Documentary, right? You're talking about documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, most of the people that are watching this podcast or listening to this podcast are not going to like what I say. Mm. I would not spend over two hundred thousand dollars these days. Two hundred and fifty tops mm. today. That could be a totally different answer the next time we do this in three months or four months. Right. <laughs> <But> today, <laughs> because think about it, there's nowhere to sell the movie anymore. Not today. I, I, you, we've just listed all the accounts. You, you can't take you can't take it to the premium cable channels because they're not buying. You have to wait for the dust to settle. But, you know. It's a lot of grunt work. You're going to have to give a lot of yourself. Um, but I would not, you know, maybe 250 And again, it all depends on the subject matter. You're going to make a movie about Tiger Woods and, and Tiger's all for it, then it's a different right. story. Right. But most documentary filmmakers are not dealing with famous people. Right. And they're dealing more with causes. And I think that's what I want to get at. Um you know, and I think you do have to put in your budget at the end money for marketing. You, you cannot do. leave out the marketing piece of it. And it has to be a big chunk, whether you are going to be buying ads on social media, whether you're going to be hiring a social media team to do it organically. You have to save a good chunk of money for that social media marketing, not just to make your movie. You okay, so you, you, it, it is so important right now. And it's not being taught in film school. It's not. Um Everything has changed. I mean, you know, the way to market a movie is like, you, I think you said this earlier, it's on its head. Nothing is the same. Um, you know, there used to be, I used to get, I, I still get it. A, a, a film critic friend of mine, a gentleman by the name of Joel, Joe Baltic wrote for the Philadelphia Daily News and I became friends with him. And I remember going in over his house. I was young. I was maybe in my young 20s. 
went over his house one night on a Friday night, and he had the New York Times entertainment section. And the New York Times entertainment section on a fri- on Friday was, you know, 30 pages thick, and it was full-page ads of all the movies coming out. And it was the coolest thing in the world, you know, because we both love movies. And, and he, he taught me, one, to get to New York Times on Friday and Sunday because that's when all the film stuff is. And he taught me a whole lot more. Unfortunately, Joe passed away last year, but mm. that doesn't exist anymore. You go to the New York Times now on a Friday, yeah, you'll see some ads, Netflix ads. Mm. Mm. Well, that's a good lesson, uh, Joe. We've got to wrap up now, but I don't want to leave without doing DocuView Deja Vu. So now it is now time for our segment, DocuView Deja Vu. DocuView All right, Joe, did you bring a documentary to share? Fire of Love. It's a National you Geographic like- doc, and it's heartbreaking about this man and wife who followed volcanoes. Um, there's no secret. They follow one too close. Um, but it's mesmerizing. It's uh, the, the, the filmmaking and the shots that these this husband and wife took as close to a volcano as anyone's ever gotten. Um, and, yes, it's heartbreaking, and it, and it really is. But I thought it was I thought it was incredible. And it was nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. I do want to see that one. Okay, mine is called Senior, and it is a new documentary by Robert Downey Jr. about his dad. And it is fascinating. It is all in black and white. The method that they used to shoot it I thought was fascinating. His father is in the process of aging and dying and Uh, It's just interesting how they treated him with dignity and respect. They kind of let him make his own version of the movie they were making. I just, I loved it. I thought it was genius, incredibly tender. um, And just me with my father aging and uh, dealing with a lot of those aging issues. uh, It was just heartwarming as well. So there you go. Jason, I'm not even going to make you make a a DocuView Deja Vu suggestion today. (laughs) Well, all right. Yeah, we're, we're right down to the wire on our time here, so I'm just going to wrap up. Joe, thank you for being here. Thank and, you. Uh, always a pleasure. I, I always look forward to having you here, Joe. I just love your stories <laughs> so much. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell, and you could be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. The Documentary First podcast is a production of Documentary First Productions. Help us create more educational and inspiring filmmaking content and share more stories of service by supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash documentary first. Also, be sure to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts so more people can discover our awesome entertainment industry content as well as our moving historical stories and possibly learn some new things along the way. Bye, everybody.